from NPR News in Washington, D.C. This is Weekend Edition. I'm Scott Simon. This hour, the latest from the vast destruction in Syria. Then Ron Elving on the weekend politics and another object in the sky. Mary Louise Kelly from Iran on the anniversary of the Islamic Revolution there. Edith Renfro-Smith on who she's met and what she's learned over 108 years. And Carrie Condon on her Oscar-nominated role in which she plays the hard-working sister of a man who doesn't do much of anything. She's doing the wash and she's buying groceries, she's cooking, she's doing everything, and he's doing nothing but sitting around moping and going to the pub. Has he considered a future in radio? First, our newscast. It's Saturday, February 11, 2023. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Giles Snyder. An earthquake-stricken Turkey. Rescuers are still looking for survivors following Monday's powerful earthquake. According to official reports today, the quake has killed more than 24,000 people in Turkey and Syria. But NPR's Peter Kenyon reports emergency crews are finding people alive in the rubble more than 120 hours after the quake hit. Turkey's vice president said some 67 people had been rescued in the previous 24 hours. Two women are among the latest survivors to be pulled from collapsed buildings. The state news agency reports a 70-year-old woman was brought to safety in Karamanmaraş province, and a 55-year-old woman was rescued from the rubble in the city of Diyarbakir. Stories of people surviving for unusually long times brought small moments of relief and perhaps sparks of hope for the families of those still missing. Rescue crews from 68 countries are present on the ground in Turkey. Peter Kenyon, NPR News, Adana, Turkey. Two European Union parliamentarians have been detained as part of an ongoing investigation into a corruption scandal involving alleged bribes from the government of Qatar. From Brussels, Terry Schultz reports. Belgian member of the European Parliament, Mark Tarabella, was arrested and jailed Friday night to face interrogation this weekend. Former Italian EU lawmaker Pier Antonio Panzeri, who's admitted being at the heart of a cash-for-influence operation, says he paid more than 100,000 euros to Tarabella to try to sway opinion in the European Parliament, the EP, to benefit Qatar politically and economically. Panzeri remains in jail along with former EP Vice President Ava Kiley and her partner, facing charges of corruption, participation in a criminal organization, and money laundering. Tarabella has been expelled from his socialist party in the EP, despite professing his innocence and volunteering to waive his parliamentary immunity, which was removed last week. For NPR News, I'm Terry Schultz in Brussels. The emergency contraception, commonly known as a morning-after pill, is supposed to be available over-the-counter without a prescription or age restrictions, but a new report finds that shoppers often encounter substantial barriers when trying to purchase a pill. Here's NPR's Maria Godoy. Emergency contraception is used within days after intercourse, ideally as soon as possible, to prevent unintended pregnancy. But a study of pharmacies and grocery stores in 21 states found that nearly one in five stores did not carry emergency contraception at all. And more than a quarter of stores imposed outdated age restrictions. More than a third of study participants said it was difficult to find emergency contraception. Kelly Cleland is with the American Society for Emergency Contraception. Emergency contraception is urgent as an option for preventing pregnancy after unprotected sex and sexual assault. She says now that many states have restricted access to abortion, timely access to emergency contraception is more critical than ever. Maria Godoy, NPR News. And you're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. 
It is the decision taxpayers have been waiting for. The IRS now says it will not tax the one-time state tax refund Massachusetts residents received last year. The state gave taxpayers this one-time payout last year because of a revenue surplus. Last evening, the IRS announced those special state payments will not be included for federal tax purposes. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu's administration and finance director is being charged with money laundering. The mayor's office says Frida Brassfield has been placed on unpaid leave after she was arraigned yesterday. A spokesman for the mayor says Brassfield pleaded not guilty to the charges. The Sumner Tunnel is closed this weekend for the major renovation project. The tunnel was open last weekend because the dangerously low temperatures were not compatible with work on the project. In sports, last night the Celtics beat the Hornets 127-116. to 116. This afternoon at the Garden, the Bruins host the Capitals. It's 37 degrees in Boston. Sunshine today. Highs in the low 40s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Imaginable Futures, supporting the Institute for Women's Policy Research, working to close inequality gaps for women and improve the economic well-being of families. IWPR.org. Sending Winston flowers from WBUR supports your commitment to curiosity. Order by noon today for delivery Monday at WBUR.org. That's right. Delivery by Monday if you order by noon today. And that's only a few hours away. So go ahead and go to WBUR.org or you can call 1-800-909-9287. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. With me in the studio, it's WBUR's Candace Springer. Good morning, Sharon. Um, you know, these flowers are, are so exciting. Every year that we do this, I love this. And we have four special arrangements that you can choose from. Best of all, when you buy your Valentine's Day flowers from WBUR, you'll also be helping us support local journalism. So, for example, next week, our environmental team is going to do a whole series on PFAS, which are these long-lasting chemicals found in drinking water. Um, When you send flowers from WBUR, you are giving a lovely gift to your loved one, and you're letting us do that reporting, digging into the to these chemicals, figuring out what's going on with them, and giving you more information that you can use in your everyday life. So if you want to give, the deadline is noon today, 1-800-909-9287, or you can go to WBUR.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon, and thank you for joining us. The earthquake in Turkey and Syria has left nearly 25,000 people dead and wounded tens of thousands. Aid has flowed into Turkey, but in northern Syria, residents say they've received almost nothing. From the first day, where's where's the words? Why Why are we alone? Why are we alone? All people are alone. Where is the world? Why are we alone? That resident asked. Now, this is an area of Syria held by opponents of the Syrian regime. The Syrian government has tried to block UN aid routes into there for years. NPR's Ruth Sherlock was granted rare access yesterday and joins us now. Ruth, thanks for being with us. Thank you. What were you able to see? Well, we visited the town of Jinderis, and Scott, there we just found scenes of utter devastation. There's whole neighborhoods collapsed. And, you know, this is a fairly small place, but the mayor told me that 850 bodies so far have been pulled from the rubble and hundreds more are missing. 
I spoke to one man who lost his wife and his two-year-old child, but he said almost no friends could come to the burial because everyone is trying to bury their loved ones. We're told that there are 26 children who are now orphans. And in this country, the civil war and the earthquake are all mixed together. In one building, a whole family died that had fled to here after surviving a chemical weapons attack by the Syrian regime in another city. Are these people receiving any kind of help? Almost nothing. So by comparison, here in Turkey, I've been moving around on these roads that are gridlocked by trucks that are bringing in aid to the devastated areas. And there's thousands of tons of help that's poured in from around the world. But at the border crossing in Syria yesterday, it was silent and empty. And Syrians we met say hundreds of lives could have been saved with more help. Mohammed Juma lost his wife and two children, a 20-month-old little boy called Ali and six-month-old Hussein. And I met him as he stood on the rubble of his home where they died. He's talking here about the moments that they tried to flee. He says his family was alive under the rubble at first, but that the town just didn't have the equipment to get them out. People told us, you know, all over the town they heard screams for days of those trapped, but they were powerless to help them. Now the mayor of Jindedis says they need shelters for 3,900 families, and they have so few supplies that he's seen people fighting each other over drinking water water. Ruth, is there a prospect for more aid getting in? Well, over the years, the United Nations has kept open this one route for aid supplies from Turkey. And Syria says that sending aid to rebel-held areas from Turkey is a violation of its sovereignty. So even maintaining this one route open requires a vote at the UN Security Council periodically. Some say the UN could act on its own, but that might set a precedent with rules loosening on violating sovereignty in other countries. But the thing is, the situation now in Syria is so desperate, and this earthquake has really shown the dangers of limiting aid in this way. So there's real pressure now for this to change. NPR's Ruth Sherlock in southern Turkey, thank you so much. Thank you. We turn now to NPR senior editor and correspondent Ron Elvied. Ron, thanks very much. Good to be with you, Scott. The tragic earthquake in Syria and and Turkey dominates the news. There's an urgent need for help, an outpouring from the world. Will the real test be in coming weeks, though, when the news cycle moves on? Yes, indeed. We have much to be grateful for in this country in any season. But when we see this kind of tragedy and coming in such waves, battering one of the most long-suffering regions in the world, it is humbling. Let's uh, let's move to domestic affairs here. Uh, single classified document uh, that the FBI turned up at the home of former Vice President Mike Pence in Indiana. What do you make of it? Probably not much. Not at this point. You know, the spasm of national anger and angst over stray and missing classified documents has weakened over the many months. A, a consensual search at Mike Pence's just doesn't have the same impact as a search warrant at Mar-a-Lago or Mm. at the private home of President Biden. Sure, Pence had said he didn't have any documents, and then an aide found some, but there's just no comparison here to the battle that Pence's old boss has mounted to hide classified documents in far greater numbers, denying having them at all, going to court to keep them. Uh, But the more we hear about Pence and Biden having this material, uh, the more the story loses focus, and people ask why so many documents were classified in the first place. 
Of course, Mike Pence also received a subpoena from the special counsel investigating the January 6 riots um, and the classified documents found at former President Trump's resort. Pence's testimony about January 6th is another matter entirely. Uh, we're told that Trump pressured him for days, perhaps weeks, to take part in this scheme to invalidate the 2020 election. Now, you remember, this was about setting aside the Electoral College vote and having the House, just one chamber of Congress, pick the president instead. And we've heard this from many sources over time. And obviously, the special counsel would like to have it on the record directly from Pence. Uh, it would be key testimony against Trump. And that's why this call to testify puts Pence in such an awkward and difficult position. Uh, he's still talking about being a candidate for president himself. He does not want to testify against Trump and alienate every remaining Trump supporter by doing so. There are questions here about executive privilege. We're going to hear that argument. Mm -hmm. There will also be questions of whether any kind of privilege applies to a conversation that's essentially a proposed conspiracy to commit a crime. President Biden got a lot of good reviews for his State of the Union address. Uh, any sign you see of political impact? It looks like about 27 million people watched live. That's down from last year. But tens of millions more have seen news reports about it since and social media reactions. Now, far more people see the coverage than see the event, Scott. And the coverage has been pretty consistently positive for Biden. He had a good night. Mm -hmm. And he needed one because polls have been showing that much of the country doesn't know what he's done so far. But he got his message across Tuesday night. He was helped by the boorish behavior of a few of the House Republicans. And he was even able at one point to get the whole Congress on its feet by asking them to stand up for seniors. And when they were all on their feet and cheering, he said, let's all agree to protect Social Security and Medicare. And there they all were. Let's listen. So tonight, let's all agree, and apparently we are, let's stand up for seniors. Stand up and show them. We'll not cut Social Security. We will not cut Medicare. Of course, uh, got asked, another high-altitude object came into U.S. airspace just yesterday. Uh, and this time, President Biden doesn't hesitate to order the military to have it shot down. That's right. The balloon had that crossed the country last week, uh, the popular obsession, not just in the media. Uh, we're still analyzing the wreckage from that episode. So this new intruder, much smaller, uh, less compelling, and of course, you couldn't see it from your backyard. But coming when it did, and being as remote from population centers, centers rather as it was, uh, there was little hesitation to bringing it down. We still don't know where it came from, but we're left to wonder, will all this surveillance lead to a major confrontation with China or another foreign power? Will the world's two largest economies confine their rivalry to market competition? Or are we drifting to more of a military confrontation? And Pierre's Ron Elving, thanks so much. Thank you, Scott. The Philadelphia Eagles are slight favorites to win the Super Bowl tomorrow, but Sean Payton's already won big. The former head coach of the New Orleans Saints, with whom he won a Super Bowl, has signed a five-year, estimated $18 million a year contract to coach the Denver Broncos. He becomes the Broncos coach at the end of a football season in which even more attention's been drawn to the toll the game can inflict on players, especially after DeMar Hamlin, the Buffalo Bills' safety, suffered a cardiac arrest after a tackle last month. 
Mr. Hamlin appeared at the NFL Honors Ceremony this week and spoke of how grateful he feels to be alive. Sean Payton won seven division titles with New Orleans, as well as their Super Bowl. He was 2006 NFL Coach of the Year. But he was suspended by the NFL for the 2012 season over what became known as Bountygate. An NFL investigation found more than 20 Saints players set up cash bounties to entice teammates to intentionally injure opposing players so painfully and seriously they'd be taken out of the game. $1,000 cash was the typical payoff if a player was carted off the field on a stretcher. $1,500 if the player was knocked out. The numbers went up for marquee players in playoff games. Pro football is a violent enterprise, but offering players cash bounties to injure other players is still against the rules. Sean Payton was not accused of orchestrating the scheme or offering his own cash prizes. But the NFL's investigation found he did not stop the bounties when he learned about them or end the payoffs when so ordered by his team's owner. In fact, the NFL found that as the investigation deepened, Sean Payton had advised assistant coaches, make sure our ducks are in a row. Sean Payton was the first head coach in decades to be suspended. It cost him nearly $8 million in salary. He helped coach his son's sixth-grade team during his year off, served his suspension, and returned to the game at which he excels. NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell told a press conference this week that injuries in the NFL have been down 6% this year. But if you watch the Super Bowl tomorrow, and despite many misgivings, I may, you might consider Sean Payton's pricey new contract and wonder if it means the NFL has moved much beyond seeing the breaks, sprains, and concussions of its own players as being just part of the game. Sending your Valentine Winston flowers from WBUR creates stories that bring joy to your life. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Send your gift nearly anywhere in New England, and your support will bring you stories you won't hear anywhere else. Order by noon today for Monday delivery of any of our four choices, including a 12-month Flower of the Month subscription that begins with a rose arrangement on Valentine's Day. Visit WBUR.org. That's WBUR.org to place that order. And again, just to make clear, you need to choose your gift. You need to place that order by 12 o'clock today if you want your Winston Flowers delivered Monday. Now, that's the day before Valentine's Day, and it's a great option because it gives your special someone more time to enjoy the gift of these gorgeous Winston flowers. And the way you take care of business is you go to WBUR.org or you call 1-800-909-9287. I'm Sharon Brody and with me in the studio it's WBUR's Candace Springer. Hello, good morning. I mean, we have some really nice, beautiful arrangements to choose from too. We're looking at them right here in the studio. You could choose from one dozen 
tw- uh, one dozen roses. You could double that. You could do two dozen. And then we have a really beautiful ultimate romance arrangement in addition to maybe sending an arrangement every single month to your loved one. And best of all, when you buy your Valentine's Day flowers from WBUR, you'll be supporting all of the news, the programs, the shows, the podcasts, even WBUR City Space, all of the things that you love about WBUR. So you can call 1-800-909-9287 or you can go to WBUR.org. But again, do that by 12 o'clock today. That's not even four hours away. Uh, And, you know, the way the weekend goes, you can sometimes get caught up in one thing or another. Mm -hmm. So while you're thinking about it, why not go ahead and go to WBUR.org and place your order? Because when you do that by noon today, your Winston flowers will be delivered by Monday. And when they're delivered on Monday, that gives your Valentine an entire extra day to enjoy. So again, WBUR.org is the website. The phone number is 1-800-909-9287. And thanks. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by One Fine Morning from Sony Pictures Classics. Leia Seydoux stars as a widow who juggles her young daughter, her sick father, and an affair with a married friend now playing select cities. And the Peabody Essex Museum presenting Spirits. Saren Sherpa with Robert Beer on view now. Plan your visit at PEM.org. I'm Joel Snyder with these headlines. The flying object that was shot down over frozen waters off Alaska's north slope remains a mystery. However, the Pentagon says military units in Alaska are working to recover the debris. The shootdown follows last weekend's downing of a suspected Chinese spy balloon. The FBI says it found another classified document at the private home in Indiana of former Vice President Mike Pence. The five-hour search came as Pence is facing a subpoena from the special prosecutor overseeing the two Justice Department investigations of former President Trump. And Pennsylvania Democratic Senator John Fetterman is back home after spending two days in a Washington, D.C. hospital. His office says tests show he has not suffered a second stroke and that he will return to the Senate on Monday. I'm Giles Snyder, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BetterHelp, committed to supporting mental health through therapy. Clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or phone at betterhelp.com public. And from Indeed, a hiring platform designed to streamline the candidate search process. Businesses attract, screen, and interview candidates all from the employer dashboard. More at Indeed.com NPR. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Today in Iran marks the anniversary of the 1979 revolution that toppled the monarchy and installed the Ayatollah Khomeini as the first supreme leader of the Islamic Republic. The occasion usually brings crowds to the streets of Tehran and across the country, but this year's events are tense. All things considered, host Mary Louise Kelly is in Tehran and joins us now. Mary Louise, thanks for being with us. Hey there, Scott. Tell us uh, what's happening there today, what you can see. 
Well, what we've seen is thousands and thousands of people converging on Azadi Square. This is, uh, that means Freedom Square. It's a big square in central Tehran. Huge rally. President Raisi's voice booming from loudspeakers above us. A lot of people carrying signs showing photos of uh, the first Supreme Leader Khomeini and the current one, Khamenei. Uh, signs reading, down with USA, down with Israel. We spoke with one man. His name was Syed. He's 33. And I asked... Why are you here? Are you here to support your government or here to support Iran? I'm definitely here to support Iran, and I'm definitely here to tell the government that we need to do some uh, serious changes, especially when it comes to the economy. Other people we spoke to, Scott, were more hardcore, more pro-government. One young woman told me, we love Hamini. And we noted that the atmosphere is tense this year, and, and, and certainly that would be tied to the protests that began in September. It certainly is. It was fascinating. We got a taste of that just last night. The government had organized a fireworks show to kick everything off. And as the fireworks started exploding, we're leaning out the windows of our hotel to listen, and you could suddenly hear chanting begin coming from apartment buildings around us as other people opened their windows. They're saying their death to the dictator. We also heard calls death to Khamenei and freedom. As you know, Scott, this country has seen months of protests following the death of Masa Amini, the 22-year-old woman who was killed last September in police custody. Since then, hundreds of people have been killed in the protests, thousands detained, four have been executed. That's according to human rights groups. Um, so Revolution Day this year is, is a little different. I, I think, it, among other things, it's a chance for the regime to say... Everything's under control, nothing to see here, everything is calm. And Mary Louise, is it your impression that in in fact the protests are done, that it's just it's just shouting in the middle of the night now and not and not the mass protests we saw? So on the surface, it's the protests have been quieted. Uh, they have been crushed. But we have interviewed a lot of people here who say the grievances that fueled them have not gone away. They are mad at their leaders. And this is both in Tehran and we managed to get outside. We drove to Isfahan this week. That is another big Iranian city about five hours by car from Tehran. We talk to people, people even though they are scared to speak with visiting journalists. So to protect them, we're, we're not going to use their names. But I want you to hear just a taste. This is what one woman told us when I asked about this. It's the 44th anniversary of the revolution. And I asked, 44 years from now, are we still going to be marking this? Or is this regime still going to be around? No, I don't think so. I, um, because the youth of our country are so much awake and uh, there is the sense of freedom in them that I don't think it will last for another two years. And I will add, Scott, her father was with her. He was in his 40s back in 1979 during the revolution. He was standing, nodding in agreement with his daughter. He told us the promises of the revolution were false. Mary Louise, you, you and our crew are American journalists. Uh, can you report freely? So we are free to ask whatever we want. We've talked to a lot of people today at the Revolution Day events. People were eager to speak to us. They were queuing up to speak to us. We were stopped twice, once by uniformed police, once by plain clothes, uh, asked to see our papers. We showed them our temporary press ID. We were allowed to carry on. I will add, we have not been able to report from everywhere we would like to be. We asked to go to Avin prison here in Tehran. That's where political prisoners are being held. And we were told, not possible. And Pierre's Mary Louise Kelly. Thanks so much. Thank you, Scott.
I know this isn't exactly gracious, but may we ask how old you are? 108 plus. God bless. When's your birthday? July 14, 1914. Well, I was pleased to introduce Edith Renfro Smith, one of the many black Americans whose historic lives we celebrate this month. And what a life, born just weeks before the start of World War I into one of the only black families in Powasheek County, Iowa. You know, we looked it up in the 1910 census. There were 20,000 people who lived there, but just 55 black people. Well, that was more than I knew about. <laughs> we were the only black family that I heard of at that time. She lived in Grinnell and would go on to attend the small liberal arts college just blocks from her home. Class of 1937, the first black woman graduate in Grinnell College history. In fact, all six of the Renfro children went to college, a remarkable achievement for a black family just a few decades after Plessy versus Ferguson put official gloss on the lie of separate but equal. My mother insisted that education was the only thing that could not be taken away from them. A lot had been taken away, and in living memory, Edith's own grandfather was born into slavery. He had nine brothers, and for some reason, his mother had taken those children to Arkansas, and he was only 14, and at that time he was old enough to be a slave, so she had to send him to Louisiana, where he would find a good master to buy him. In time, George Craig escaped, and there's evidence John Brown helped him find his way to Grinnell. George Craig worked there as a barber. Edith's parents, Lee and Eva Renfro, worked as a cook and a laundress. How did your parents manage to send six children to college? Very diligently. My sister, who was eight years older than I, went into service so she could keep my brother in Hampton Institution in Virginia until he graduated from college. Everybody helped each other. Edith herself put off college for a year to work and continued working as a secretary and in the campus duplicating office throughout her time as the only black student at Grinnell College. But she still made time to participate in women's intramural dance, badminton, a sport called ring tennis, basketball, field hockey, and she met visiting dignitaries. Amelia Earhart? Yes. She was one of the celebrities that came to Grinnell to talk to the students, and she was just like another one of us. It was a delightful visit. So you met Amelia Earhart? Oh, yes. Oh, my gosh. Did you tell her, you, you got to be careful where you're flying? <laughs> no. And that would not be the last time Edith Renfro stood shoulder to shoulder with greatness. She moved to Chicago after graduation, going from a town where she was nearly alone as a black person to the city where Louis Armstrong came of age, where the great novelist Richard Wright founded the Southside Writers Group. Did you ever meet Gwendolyn Brooks? Only in passing, because she was giving a program 
at the YWCA. Wow. I went to all the programs where they came as celebrities. And the YWCA, which had hired me, saw to it that we met all the famous uh, Negroes who came to Chicago to give programs. How did you become a teacher? Well, I didn't intend to become a teacher because my major in college was uh, history and economics. Mm -hmm. It was only when I came to Chicago and uh, Oscar D. Priest, who was a congressman. Oscar D. Priest, we should mention, first uh, African-American elected to Congress uh, in the That's 20th right. century after Reconstruction. He asked me if I would like to be a teacher. That's when I decided to take a methods course where I could join the Chicago system. What was the Great Depression like? Very, very strenuous, because we were the last ones to receive what was offered. You mean blacks, yes. That's right. Yeah, well, I thought that what we were talking about. Yeah, we, we are. We absolutely are. Edith Renfro married Henry Smith in 1940. They had two daughters and settled on Chicago's South Side, along with many other black families including the Hancocks. Mr. Smith was uh, a dear friend of, of my mother's in, in particular. So we were, we were that close, almost like we were related, more like she was an aunt, <laughs> that kind of a, of a thing. And that is Herbie Hancock. He and my oldest daughter were friends across the street. He could only reach the windowsill and she could too, because they were both about two, and that's what they, that's when we became friends of the Hancocks. I think the word regal applies here. She had a regal kind of presence. I had been to Grinnell College, and so his mother was interested in colleges for her son. She didn't try to convince me to go to Grinnell out of any any kind of forcing me in some way or tricking me to go to, to Grinnell. Just her demeanor was one of absolute respect. And that's how I still feel about Mrs. Smith. And that's how one of the greatest jazz musicians in history ended up spending four years in finding his calling in the middle of Iowa. Chicago, always the most bustling of American cities, leaps ahead in a frenzy of building. Edith Renfro Smith has lived in Chicago now for 86 years. What's happened there during that time? Well, let's see. Ebony and Jet magazines, Elijah Muhammad and Louis Farrakhan in the Nation of Islam, Oprah Winfrey built an empire there, Barack Obama became president from there. It's where the Reverend Jesse Jackson founded Operation Push and the Rainbow Coalition, Although Edith Renfro Smith is, without explanation, not much of a fan of the admired reverend. We were quite unhappy with him, so don't please don't talk about him, because <laughs> I don't think he did what he should do. Forgive me, do you remember times of civil unrest, too, on the South Side? You know, they had, one of the things is, I am not a person who, a rabble, I call it a rabble rouser, mm -hmm. because we only wanted peace 
and quiet where I was. And that's all I wanted for my children. So I did not march, but they did. Dr. King spent a year in Chicago. I wonder if you ever met him. I did. When he came and spoke at a synagogue, that was when I met him. And that was when he first started his tour of talking. My gosh, you met Martin Luther King at a synagogue. As a Chicagoan, this makes me proud. <laughs> this yes, is the way history fits together. That's right. You've seen a lot of history, haven't you? A lot, a lot, a lot. A lot of good and a lot of bad. Have we made progress in this country, or do we keep slipping back? Once you elect somebody who had so many detrimental things to say about anyone who was not a wasp, well, I think we're trying to slip backward. And yet, Edith Renfro Smith at 108 years of age is undaunted and greets every day like an old friend. Wake up every morning and thank the good Lord that you are alive and able to look at his wonderful world. I like that. I think that sounds beautiful. Well, it makes life beautiful and always go with a smile. A frown does nothing for the person you meet. Herbie Hancock's Watermelon Man, and you're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Sharon Brody. This is 90.9 WBUR. It is 37 degrees in Boston with sunshine today and highs in the low 40s. Lows dropping to the upper 20s overnight and then increasing clouds tomorrow. Still mild. Sunday's high around 50 degrees. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by JBS Home Inspections. With condo common area inspections as well as home inspections for buyers and sellers throughout greater Boston. JBSinspections.com and UMass Chan Medical School. Proud to be named one of Boston Globe's top places to work. Learn more at umassmed.edu globe. Sending Winston flowers from WBUR supports your source for news. Order yours by noon today for delivery Monday. Visit wbur.org. Once again, that's WBUR.org, and we cannot emphasize enough that you are facing a deadline of noon today to have your Winston flowers delivered to your Valentine on Monday. And it's a great idea to get those valent- uh, to get those flowers delivered on Monday because then your lucky recipient has an entire extra day to fully enjoy them. The entire day of Valentine's Day, they're enjoying those beautiful Winston flowers. 1-800-909-9287, or you can look at your choices and place your order at WBUR.org. With me in the studio, it's WBUR's Candace Springer. Good morning, Candace. Good morning. One of the things I love about when people order their flowers for Valentine's Day from WBUR is that they get to give a beautiful gift to that special someone in their life, and they get to support all of the journalism that we do here at WBUR. And we also get to read the very cute messages that people send, oh, right? They're so those. good. Like I'm reading this one right now. Happy Valentine's Day to my NPR loving sweetie. How lucky we are to have each other in the world. Oh, 
That just melts my heart. I know, I know. So if you want to look really good, you might want to put in your order today by noon today so that you can get them there in time on Monday. And all you have to do is call 1-800-909-9287 or go to WBUR.org. And you know, while we're talking about the cards, I really love this one that um, someone sent yesterday. It's, um, I think it's especially speaks to the people who say, I'm not that sentimental. Mm. Okay, I'll do Valentine's Day. I'm not that sentimental. This one is, gifts for you are hard to choose, but at least this one supports the news. (laughs) We have some poets out there. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) So again, remember, you have to get your poetry and your order in uh, by noon today if you want that delivered to your sweetie or your loved one, uh, you know, on Monday, the day ahead of Valentine's Day. You can do that by calling one 800 909 9287 or go to WBUR.org. Yeah, I mean, it, remember, like, you're supporting WBUR when you're giving this gift. You're helping us fund podcasts, local journalism, even WBUR City Space. So, once again, order your flowers today, 909 9287, 1 800 Recovery efforts continue in Turkey and Syria. We'll have the latest from the region. And here at home, private equity cost-cutting means you may not see a doctor in the emergency room. If we do have a major trauma, multiple victims come in, there's only one doctor there, we need to be prepared to do this procedure. Those stories and more, Sunday on Weekend Edition from NPR News. Tomorrow morning at 8 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Eric and Wendy Schmidt through the Schmidt Family Foundation, working together to create a just world where all people have access to renewable energy, clean air and water, and healthy food. On the web at theschmidt.org. From the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org and from the Annie E. Casey Foundation. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Call and Response is a collection of short stories that reveals the world as lived by girls and women in a village and in the capital city of Botswana. Girls and women who seek lives that might reach beyond or around traditional ways and current circumstances. Here's how the author begins her story, A Good Girl. One Sunday October morning, in the year I was nine and given to daydreaming, I watched my mother step the soil in the potted plants on the veranda. She was stooped over her African violets and wax begonias, quiet except for the halves of angry breath spurting from the tight line of her lips. It had been only two days since my older sister with her pots returned home from God knows where, and she and Mama we're still staying out of each other's way. Call and Response is the first book from Hotata One Moeg, whose work has appeared in the Oxford American and a public space and who's a recipient of a Wallace Stegner Fiction Fellowship. She joins us now from Provincetown, Massachusetts. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for inviting me. I'm so excited to be here. Well, we're excited to have you. And you know both small town life and big city life in Botswana, don't you? Yes. I was born in Soroe, which is where my family is from. 
I spent a little bit of my life in a much smaller village called Magalamabedi in the northwest of Botswana. And then at 13 years old, I moved to Habarone to go to boarding school there. Um, mm-hmm. And I lived there for 14 years or so before I moved to Mississippi, actually, to Oxford, Mississippi for graduate school. In the story, which I loved, which you just read the introduction, A Good Girl, the central character is, but says, I wrote this down, we wanted to love, but we had been warned love was dangerous. A bright burning flame, it would lick us alive. What do warnings do for young people? (laughs) I think depending on the kind of person a young person is, the warnings can keep them away from pursuing that, those kind of romantic yeah. encounters. But also, I think they make those romantic encounters more, much more attractive and alluring, right? Because yeah. like you want to know what your parents are keeping you away from or what, you know, in this case, the brother is telling you, like, guys only want women for certain things. And so you are kind of curious about what those things are. Yeah. Uh, and in one story, there's a 12-year-old girl who tires of taking care of her sick aunt. Mm -hmm. Uh, She calls her the patient. I wonder, does she feel that that death is kind of being rubbed into her face? I think when she is at that age, it's more that she's like really ashamed of her aunt dying. She had these ideas of her aunt as this kind of glamorous figure in her life who kind of sweeps in once in a while, tells her all of these stories about life outside of the village, you know, encourages her and gives her these ideas of the world as a bigger place. And so when her aunt falls sick and is essentially sent back home to die, and she sees her as this sort of pitiful figure who has not lived up to the ideals that she had, she's ashamed of that. Also, I think that she knows what her aunt is dying from. You know, her aunt is dying from AIDS. I think that it's a subject that most of the people within the household understand, but they don't really talk to each other about it because at the time, the story said in the mid-90s in Rosanna, there was so much stigma about people dying from AIDS. And so she's really ashamed of her aunt. It's only when she's much older and she has been able to travel herself and she's able to kind of look back and reassess her treatment of her aunt um, and just see it wasn't just her aunt. It was was so many other people that were dying at the same time that then she realizes, oh, there was so much death pressing against her all the time. Have you known these characters and these stories, more or less, one way or another? So the stories, so many of them are said in my home village of Saroe, and they're said specifically in the Botalauta ward, which is where I'm from. All of these seem very similar to women within my own family, you know, my cousins, my sisters, my aunties. So for sure, I would say that, yes, I do know women like this and, and girls like this. Yeah. I've I've read that you went back to Botswana during a part of the pandemic. I did, yeah. I went back home, and I went actually went back home to Saroe, to the village, to live there with my mother. It was, it was a really wonderful time. It was kind of a humbling time, just because <laughs> it was interesting that I was back home, and you know, when I'm not in Saroe, I do feel kind of nostalgic and homesick for all of these ideas of that I've just been saying of being in a village, people can come in and just drop in. But when I was home, I was noticing uh, so many of my uh, mother's friends would just like drop in and then you're expected to like drop what you're doing and make them tea and and do all of that. And I noticed that I was getting really frustrated and I could not figure out why. And I just noticed, oh, it's because I haven't lived in the village for so long. And I've lived, um, you know, I was like 
essentially living by myself and I was living in the US. But I quickly went back into the fold. I really enjoyed spending time with my mother and my older aunties um, who, you know, kept me in a lot of really great gossip <laughs> about everybody. Oh, you were a little <laughs> yes. behind on that, I guess, weren't you? I was a little bit behind. <laughs> wow. Uh, I want to ask you about your story, Small Wonders, which I liked so much. Mm-hmm. Woman loses her husband in a car accident. Yes. And uh, wonders, you know, how can the world go on? My life is, has just been put on hold. Does she begin to feel that she's expected to play a certain role as a widow? Yeah, I think that she does feel that way. She participates in this tradition wherein widows have to wear these mourning clothes, Mm -hmm. typically a year or less than that if the person is young. And her mother is saying, you know, there has to have been a reason why our people did this. What's interesting is that once she has actually gone through the year of mourning, she is reluctant to take the clothes off because she she thinks that the clothes keep her tethered to her husband, that they keep his memory and the idea of him yeah. alive in some way uh, for herself and also for other people who may not know her and may not know him, but because they can see that she's wearing those clothes, they understand immediately that she's mourning somebody that she loved. So for me, what's interesting is that she really participated in this tradition only out of obligation, but then she she understands at the end that it has offered her something that she wasn't expecting. And I think that in the story and in, in the other stories in the collection, there is a way in which the characters or the, you know some other women are trying to move away from these traditions that they feel mm-hmm. are out of step with their modern life, but they also sometimes find that they're longing for some of those customs offer them something that they cannot get from modern life. Yeah. Well, modern life can be a terrible jumble, can't it? Yeah. <laughs> it can be chaotic and very lonely. <laughs> yeah. Call and Response, a book of short stories, and the first book from Hotata One Moeng. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much. This was so much fun. (laughs) What says, I love you, I adore you, more than a trip to the rage room? They give you a hard hat, safety goggles, and a bat or a mallet, and then you just go to town. Tear down that wall tomorrow on Weekend Edition Sunday with Aisha, some non-traditional Valentine's Day gifts. You can tune in by asking your smart speaker to play NPR or your member station by name. The Banshees of Inisherin is racking up awards nominations, including Oscar for Best Picture, Screenplay, Director 2 for Best Supporting Actor, and for Best Supporting Actress. Carrie Condon, she plays Siobhan, the sister of Paul Rick, goes to a pub on their island to dress down her brother's best friend, Colm, for suddenly ignoring her brother. You can't just all of a sudden stop being friends with a fella. Why can't I? Why can't you? Because it isn't nice. Has he said something to you when he was drunk? No, I'd prefer him when he's drunk. It's all the rest of the time I have the problem with. What's the matter then? He's dull, Siobhan. But he's always been dull. What's changed? I've changed. 
I just don't have a place for dullness in my life anymore. But you live on an island off the coast of Ireland, Colin. What the hell are you hoping for, like? <laughs> Carrie Condon joins us now from Los Angeles. Thanks so much for being with us. Uh, thanks a million for having me on. Why do you think this film has caught on? It's set, you know, a century ago on an isolated community in an island. I suppose there's loads of reasons. Like, first of all, it deals with a theme that I feel like everyone in the world has sort of experienced at some point or another. A breakup, basically, is what it's about. A breakup of a friendship, but it could equally be a breakup of a relationship. Then it also deals with existential questions, kind of probably things we thought about during COVID when we had time to think about them of like, what am I doing with my life? Like, where's my life going? Like, what's the purpose of my life? Those sort of questions that Colm, Brendan Gleeson's characters kind of plagued with. And then also, it's really beautiful. You know, it's just so beautifully shot and beautiful part of the world. Mm. Another character says of Siobhan, uh, she prefers reading to chatting. <laughs> yeah. Well, is Siobhan happy on that island? I don't, at this point, when you find her in the story, she's worn thin and I think it's becoming like a drudgery and taking care of her brother, like while they're sweet siblings, she's more of a mother to him. She's doing everything. She's doing the washing, she's buying groceries, she's cooking, she's doing everything and he's doing nothing but sitting around moping and going to the pub. Well, actually, he does do a little bit with his animals and stuff in all fairness to him, but, you know, he doesn't do a lot and I think before the film starts she's already applied for this job in the on the mainland which i kind of thought my head was more done out of wishful thinking like i don't think she thought she was going to ever hear back from them but she's already thinking about leaving yeah tough life being a woman in ireland a century ago wasn't it i think yeah i suppose i was going to say it's still a tough life being a woman but then i was like actually it's not you know in comparison it's not at all because you know, they'd no contraception or anything then. Like when you think back in it, like the amount of kids the poor women had and all, it must have been awful. And it must have caused awful upset in a relationship when you'd be like, get off me to your husband. Because you're like, I just don't want to have another baby. You know, and they had to put up with a lot. You know, there's all sorts of hurt there, the civil war and everything. And, and yeah, you could go on and on, you know, the famine and everything. You know, I, I, I know a lot of people ask what it's like to work with Brendan Gleeson and Colin Farrell, but I love the donkey. Oh, good. Little tiny Jenny. Well, I, the most charming donkey. Uh, adorable. The, pe the people, there was a girl, Megan, who was in charge of, of, of Jenny, and, and she was so sweet, Megan. I used to love hanging around with her, and Jenny was quite young, and so she would have been very nervous on her own, so she had a friend, Donkey, with her who was a little older and a little more confident. And that donkey was called Rosie. And I was mad about Rosie, to be honest, because, you know, everyone loved Jenny because Jenny was a little smaller. And of course, Jenny was the star and everything. But only for Rosie, we wouldn't have got Jenny to do certain things because Rosie would come on set and be off camera. And so... Jenny would see Rosie and be like, oh, well, Rosie's here and Rosie's chilling out, so I guess it's OK. And so therefore Jenny would sit down or do stuff like relaxed because her friend was really close by. You were 19 on the stage of the Royal Shakespeare playing Ophelia in Hamlet. Yeah. What was that like? 
it was repertoire. So I was doing the Lieutenant of Inishmore, Martin McDonough, the writer of this film, his play at the same time. And I had to shave my hair off for Martin's play. It was nuts. It was, it was, it was, it was hard. It was a year and a half. And I think in the end, I'd done 125 performances of Hamlet. And the Hamlet was like, it was like kind of like they didn't cut a lot out of it. So it was like four hours long or something. I remember just being like, oh, come on. We get the point. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because I'd be dead an hour and a half before the end. And I used to go upstairs and have a shower for like an hour ago. And I could hear the performance thing, so I wouldn't miss the curtain call. But I was just sitting in the shower because I was like, oh, come on, hurry on and finish so I can go home. Oh, mercy. Well, let me ask, now that you're no longer 19, what, what advice would you give your younger self? Oh, God. What advice would I give myself? I'm not being all woe is me or anything, but I really wasn't given advice by anybody because I didn't have any contacts in the business at all. Like, I didn't really have my parents helping me because my first job was when I was 16. And at that point, like, I was an adult and technically in, in, in film terms, so I didn't have a chaperone or anything. So I don't know what advice I, I would give myself. Like, I feel like I did everything as best I could. And also a little part of me is reluctant to, to dole out advice because I'm like, well, I had to learn it the hard way. So unless you're paying me, I'm not giving it out for free. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that's fair. You've been a professional since you've been a teenager. What's it going to be like to be at the Oscar ceremonies? Oh, man, it's like, it's going to be so crazy because, like, I totally watched the Oscars all the time when I was younger. Like, we'd tape it. It was a real big deal in our house. And, and I remember so many moments in the Oscars. So it feels a bit surreal to me that it's like a kind of like it isn't real or something. Like if when people say like an Academy Award nominee, I'm just like, I kind of start laughing because I'm like, what? Huh? What's happened? But um, then at the same time, do you know, it's been like 24 years too. And I moved to America and I've been here on my own, like at it for a long time. So I do feel a little bit like, thank you very much um, for recognizing that I've been trying for such a long time. Carrie Condon, who was nominated for Best Supporting Actress for her role in The Banshees of uh, Indisharan. Thank you so much for being with us. Uh, it was a pleasure. Thanks for having me so much. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Hiscox, committed to helping small businesses protect their dreams. Quotes and information on customized insurance for specific risks are available at Hiscox.com. Hiscox, business insurance experts. And from Melville Charitable Trust, committed to ensuring all people have a safe, stable, and affordable home that allows them to thrive. Information about ways to prevent and solve homelessness is at melvilletrust.org. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. With me in the studio is WBUR's Candace Springer. And together, we are reminding you that you face a deadline. And that deadline is just about three hours away. You need to choose your gift by noon today if you want Winston Flowers delivered Monday, the day before Valentine's Day. And it's a 
great opportunity because it gives your special someone a little more time to enjoy your gift. And your gift also supports the news here at WBUR. Here's how you can do that. You can go to WBUR.org or you can call 1-800-909-9287. Yeah, and over the past couple of decades, tens of thousands of listeners have sent their flowers. So make this your tradition. You can give at WBUR.org or you can call 1-800-909-9287. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance, auto and home insurance that strives to treat you with kindness and humanity because they believe there's never been a better time for nice. PlymouthRock.com. I'm healthcare reporter Martha Biebinger, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Scott Simon. This hour, Elif Shafak, the acclaimed Turkish novelist who says corruption to evade building codes made earthquakes in her country even more destructive. I think what caused the catastrophe was rather than a natural disaster, it was a human-made system of inequality and corruption, and we need to talk about that. And later, what may be behind this winter's erratic weather? A couple of quarterbacks set to make history, New Mexico set to get a state of Roma, And Patrick Bringley's memoir of keeping an eye on one of the world's great art collections and an eye on those who come to see it. First, we have our newscast. Today is Saturday, February 11, 2023. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Giles Snyder. Rescue workers and volunteers in Turkey are still searching for survivors of Monday's earthquakes, even as officials in Syria say the rescue phase of search operations there has come to an end. Ampere Jason Bobian is in Turkey. He reports that the death toll in both countries now exceeds 24,000. Officials in Syria are giving up hope of finding any more people alive from the devastating quakes. Meanwhile, in Turkey, local residents and rescue crews continue to try to reach people they believe are trapped in piles of debris. Working in the darkness Friday night in the city of Adiaman, Gune Gunesh was helping dig into the basement of his sister's collapsed apartment building. Nobody want to lose the, you know, his hope. Because if you lose your hope, it's everything. Hours later, crews reached a woman and her child alive under the rubble of a neighboring building. Turkey's vice president says 67 survivors were extracted nationwide on Friday as thousands of rescue teams continued their work. Jason Bobian, NPR News, Adiaman. Turkey. The military and the FBI are recovering debris from an object shot down from U.S. airspace over Alaska nearly a week after the suspected Chinese spy balloon was taken down with a missile. NPR's Amy Held reports officials have not said what this latest object was, but that it did pose a threat to civilian airplanes. Two recovery operations underway, one for the balloon 50 feet down in the Atlantic and now a new one on the icy surface of the Arctic. Much remains unknown, but clear differences are emerging between the objects now down to debris. Beginning with their course, the Chinese surveillance balloon flew south from Canada, then across the continental U.S. for several days, the Pentagon says. And it was maneuverable. 
This latest object was flying in a northeasterly direction over Alaska. And Pentagon spokesman Pat Ryder says it was much smaller, about the size of a car. No indication at this time that it was maneuverable, but we'll know more. They waited a day to take it down after it was spotted. It was flying where commercial airplanes go, a lower altitude than the balloon. Amy Held, NPR News. Tough week on Wall Street. The three major indexes lost ground as companies continued to report quarterly earnings. And as NPR's David Gura reports, investors tried to game out the Federal Reserve's next steps. The tech-heavy Nasdaq ended the week 2.4 percent lower, and the broad-based S&P 500 was off 1.1 percent. Investors are once again trying to figure out the Federal Reserve's next moves. And although there wasn't much in the way of new economic data this week, there were a handful of speeches by Fed policymakers. Wall Street is wondering when the central bank will feel comfortable enough with the economy to pause rate hikes or to cut interest rates. But there continues to be a lot of economic uncertainty, something many companies have noted was a drag on business last quarter and will pose challenges in the months ahead. David Gura, NPR News, New York. And you're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Massachusetts residents will not face federal taxes on the one-time state tax refunds they received last year. Late yesterday, the IRS cleared up the confusion that was created when Massachusetts gave residents a one-time payout because of a revenue surplus. The IRS says it will not consider those special state payments as income that needs to be reported on federal tax returns. Mayor Michelle Wu's administration and finance director is on unpaid leave now that she's facing money laundering charges. A spokesperson for Wu says Frida Brasfield pleaded not guilty at her arraignment in Woburn Superior Court yesterday. Brasfield's lawyer says her client was wrongfully charged. Last Saturday at this time, I was telling you about record low temperatures this morning. It is record highs. The National Weather Service reports Worcester broke a 114-year-old record yesterday when it hit 56 degrees. It is 37 degrees in Boston, sunny today, and highs in the low 40s. WBUR supporters include the William T. Grant Foundation working to harness the power of research to make a difference in the lives of children, teens, and young adults for more than 80 years. Learn more at wtgrantfdn.org. Sending Winston flowers from WBUR supports your lifelong commitment to learning and growing. Order by noon today for Delivery Monday. Visit wbur.org. That's right. Noon today. That is not even three hours away. That is a hard deadline if you want those Winston flowers delivered on Monday, which is a great option to choose because that way your lucky recipient gets to enjoy the beautiful flower arrangements uh, even longer. So go to WBUR.org or you can call 1-800-909-9287. Hey, um, yeah, when you send Winston flowers through WBUR, you also help us continue to bring you stories that develop and unfold over time. For example, All Things Considered host Lisa Mullins and producer Lynn Jolliker's reporting on Afghan families evacuated from Afghanistan when American troops pulled out in 2021. They followed these families for over a year, and that's an example of how WBUR's reporting shows you how these global developments and conflicts are playing out in local communities. So when you buy your flowers from, or when you order your flowers from Winston's, you're supporting WBUR, and you're giving a special gift to someone. So call 1-800-909-9287 or go to WBUR to order today before noon.
Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. FBI agents recovered a single classified document from former Vice President Mike Pence's residence in Indiana yesterday. That's on top of the small number of documents that one of Mr. Pence's aides reported finding at the House earlier this year. NPR Justice Correspondent Carrie Johnson's been covering the story. Carrie, thanks so much for being with us. Happy to be here, Scott. Do we know what the FBI expected to find at the Pence House? It's not so much about what FBI agents expected as what they kind of felt they had to do. The former vice president told a TV interviewer earlier this year he didn't have any government secrets at his home. And then one of his lawyers found what's described as a small number of classified materials, apparently in some boxes that were unopened. That aid notified the National Archives and DOJ, and the Justice Department sent some agents to do a thorough and independent search just in case anything else was there that didn't belong there. They found one classified document Friday and six more pages that were of interest. And our colleague Ryan Lucas reports Pence gave the FBI unrestricted access, even though he wasn't home at the time. We've never made a move in our family that a few years later we don't find a box that we forgot about. So at this stage, is it hard not to think that almost every former president or vice president has some kind of classified document in their possession? Well, we have confirmation on this rule of three that we always talk about in the news business. The FBI's now found secrets in the homes of President Biden, former President Donald Trump, and former Vice President Mike Pence. The National Archives recently asked other White House officials to search their homes and offices, too. Of course, sometimes holding on to these documents is just a bad mistake, and other times it can be a crime. You know, there are lots of examples of the Justice Department prosecuting people for having classified materials, but those people tend to have not worked in the White House and had the ability to say what counts as a secret or not. And those cases tend to have other factors, too, like lots of documents and a clear intent to take them and potentially to share them with others. Mike Pence has been getting to know the Justice Department recently, hasn't he? Getting closer than perhaps he might like. We reported this week that uh, Pence also got a subpoena from special counsel Jack Smith. He's the man who's investigating the January 6th storming of the Capitol and the documents found at Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago resort. What we know is that Smith wants the former vice president to answer some questions before a grand jury. And grand juries at the federal courthouse in D.C. have been really active this year. They have already heard from some lawyers in Trump's White House. But there's at least one conversation where it seems only Pence and Trump were on the phone together. It's not clear right now whether the special counsel also wants answers from Pence about Mar-a-Lago. And it's also not clear whether Pence is going to agree to testify or whether he wants to defer to former President Trump and try to put up some kind of legal fight here. You're going to be staking at the courthouse, Uh, can we ask? (laughs) I guess I have to. And, you know, there are already lots of interns and TV producers there every day looking for Mike Pence and all kinds of other people of interest. But in all seriousness, we have not seen something like this. The spectacle of a former vice president testifying, willingly or not, against a former president he served, it's just one more way the Trump administration continues to break ground. NPR Justice Correspondent Kerry Johnson, thanks so much. My pleasure. The scope of devastation and death across Turkey and Syria is hard to hold in our minds. Human beings often want to look away. We are going to turn now to one of Turkey's most esteemed writers. 
Elif Shafak looks at pain in her novels, including The Bastard of Istanbul and Three Daughters of Eve, and her novels reflect her country's tangle of history, humanity, and politics. She spent her formative years with her mother and grandmother in Turkey and later taught at universities there. In recent years, she has made her life abroad. Elif Shafak joins us now from London. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. And may I ask, what do you hear from family and friends in Turkey? It's horrible, really. This is a, this is a massive, massive catastrophe. There's so much sorrow, so much anger as well. It didn't have to be this way. And people have lost everything. How do you explain anger towards an earthquake? Well, this, of course, this was caused by a massive earthquake, actually two earthquakes in a very short span of time, they followed each other. And it would have caused um, huge destruction or, or damage, I should say, in any any parts of the world. However, it wouldn't be so horrific if building regulations had been up to standards. I think what caused the catastrophe was rather than a natural disaster, it was a human-made system of inequality and corruption. And we need to talk about that. Let's do talk about it with you, if we could. What's been happening in Turkey over the past few years as you see it? You know, I was in Istanbul in 1999 when um, a terrible earthquake hit. Uh, more than 18,000 people died that night. I will never forget the fear of waking up in the middle of the night and finding the entire building swaying like a, like a raft in a, in a storm. After that earthquake, after that horrific death toll, Many promises were made to the people in Turkey. Politicians said that they were going to um, bring stricter laws and rules and regulations, but none of those promises were kept. You know, th there were some new rules on paper, but they were not enforced, they were not implemented. Just the opposite, the government kept issuing these construction amnesties pardoning constructors who were not using good materials when building these buildings. And every few years they would keep doing this. So there's a lot of corruption at the, at the heart of the system that, that needs to be questioned now. This is precisely why so many people have lost their lives. Because, um, because of widespread corruption, building codes were not observed and more people have died now. Yes, because the truth is a remarkable, a really mind-blowing number of buildings in Turkey in my motherland, they're not up to standards. So the materials used, they're not good, and there isn't proper checking mechanism. In addition to that, the government has introduced something called an earthquake tax, and they have been collecting money, and they told us that they were going to use that money in the next emergency. But as we've seen after this horrific earthquake, the rescue efforts were completely uncoordinated. They were not enough. So many places were left without aid. For so many hours, people waited under the rubble. And the trauma, so many people experienced the trauma of hearing the voices of their loved ones, their friends and family from under the rubble and not being able to do anything about it. As you see it, Ms. Shafak, has the, has the corruption centered in any particular party or political interest? Well, I think we need to hold the, the people in power accountable. 
you know, it might sound um, unusual for me to say this in the sense that we never talk about democracy when we talk about natural disasters, but I think there is a correlation uh, because in a democracy, in a functioning democracy, people know there's transparency, there's accountability, there's checks and balances. So when we are looking at this massive destruction, we also need to bear in mind that because there's no democracy, the suffering has been so enormous. Isn't there a democracy in Turkey? I mean, elections are coming up in the spring. In Turkey, we have relatively regular elections. That in itself is not enough to keep a democracy alive. For a democracy to survive and to thrive, we need separation of powers, checks and balances, a free and diverse media, rule of law. When all those institutions are broken, the ballot box in itself cannot deliver democracy. It can only deliver majoritarianism. And from majoritarianism to authoritarianism, it's a very short fall. I wonder if you've been turning to, to something over the past few days, something you've written, something somebody else has written. Are there lines that keep running through your mind that, that give you some solace or reflection now? It's, um, you know, I, I keep crying. I feel angry. I feel immense sorrow. I always find solace in, in poetry. It, it, it's very interesting. I mean, the fact that I'm physically not there doesn't mean emotionally I'm disconnected. And I know this feeling will resonate with many people across the diaspora. You know, we do not forget our motherlands just because we happen to be away, you know? So it's it's just heartbreaking. What do you what do you hope happens in the days ahead? Um I I, I want to focus on on change. No, change needs to happen. Women can create, can bring on change. I've always believed in this. But we also need to bear in mind that in times of disaster, women and children are affected disproportionately. We didn't get a chance to talk about Syria. I think there's immense suffering there. Let us not forget that the, that the region we're talking about was already suffering a lot from poverty, inequality, conflict, war. My point is, as citizens of humanity, wherever we happen to be across the world, we cannot remain indifferent. We cannot be disconnected from each other's stories and sorrows. We must keep global solidarity alive and especially global sisterhood alive. Elif Shavak, your most recent book is The Island of Missing Trees. Thank you for being with us. Thank you so much. Thank you. listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. Coming up on Weekend Edition in about 10 minutes, the head of the Utah chapter of the American Academy of Pediatrics discusses Utah's new law banning gender-affirming care for transgender youth. It's 37 degrees in Boston, sunshine today, and highs in the low 40s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com.
member FDIC, and the Boston Symphony Orchestra seek something new with the BSO's current season. Thrilling music and world-class performers await. Learn more today at BSO.org. Sending your Valentine Winston flowers from WBUR creates stories that help you think deeply about the world. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Send your gift almost anywhere in New England, and your support will enrich the lives of thousands of WBUR listeners in Boston and beyond. Order by noon today for Monday delivery of any of our four choices, including a dozen long-stemmed red roses. Visit WBUR.org. And we encourage you to think deeply also about that deadline. It is a deadline of noon today if you want to send those Winston flowers to be delivered Monday, the day before Valentine's Day. So go to the website, WBUR.org, or you can call 1-800-909-9287. We have four arrangements or options for you to choose from. You can get a dozen roses. You can double that. Get two dozen. Or you can get our ultimate uh, romance arrangement with a blossoms that are artfully designed, or even send flowers every month to your special someone. Just know that when you do that, you're getting the highest quality flowers from Winston's, and you're also helping us tell stories that matter to all of us and to share stories that bring joy to your lives. You can do that at 1-800-909-9287 or go to WBUR.org. And remember, you got to get it in at noon today if you want those flowers early on Monday. That's right. And it's really nice for you to send those Winston flowers to arrive on Monday because that way, uh, you know, your loved one gets to enjoy them for the entirety of Valentine's Day and a little bit before as well. And one of the things about Winston flowers is they're not only gorgeous, they are incredibly long lasting. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, whoever is the lucky recipient of the flowers that you're sending will get them for a long time. But you know what? Nothing is going to happen Uh, unless you actually take a little bit of action. Uh, Time does have a way of sneaking up on us, but you are up against some deadlines with Valentine's Day Tuesday. So go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. And again, if you want that delivery on Monday, the deadline is in under three hours. So while you're thinking about it now, go ahead and take care of it. Yes. Sending your Valentine Winston flowers from WBUR gives you a way to strengthen the journalism that strengthens us all. So listen to us. Don't procrastinate. Get it there on time. Get it there early. Uh, Noon today for Monday delivery, 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. And thanks. I'm Joel Snyder with these headlines. Military units in Alaska and the FBI are involved in the recovery of an unknown object that President Biden ordered shot down yesterday. It came down in the frozen waters off the state's north slope. Its nature remains unclear. The FBI's search of former Vice President Mike Pence's Indiana home is said to have lasted roughly five hours. Officials say they took an additional classified document. The search came as Pence is facing a subpoena from the special prosecutor overseeing the two Justice Department investigations of former President Trump. And teachers in Portugal are gathering in the capital for the latest in a series of demonstrations to press for better pay and benefits. There have been nearly two months of strikes. I'm Giles Snyder, NPR News.
Support for NPR comes from this station and from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort, offering a small ship experience with a shore excursion included in every port, destination-focused dining, and programs designed for cultural enrichment. Viking.com. And from Progressive Insurance, where drivers can compare direct rates using Progressive's rate comparison tool. Customers can see options and rates side by side. More at Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. This is NPR. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Now it's time for sports. Just 36 hours until Puppy Bowl 2023. The football game follows. LeBron James makes history and an Olympics controversy more than a year before the Paris Games open. And Paris' Tom Goldman joins us. Tom, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me, Scott. Kansas City versus Philadelphia tomorrow. The first Super Bowl starring two black starting quarterbacks. Help us appreciate... uh, the moment in these two athletes, Patrick Mahomes and Jalen Hurts. Well, it's a moment we're celebrating, two supremely skilled quarterbacks, you know, but the reality is in today's NFL, Kansas City's Mahomes, Phillies, Hurts are just two of a number of black quarterbacks who every week destroy old stereotypes that black athletes didn't have the smarts or leadership qualities or passing ability to be a quarterback. And a lot of great athletes missed out because of that. Having this first ever moment of two black starting quarterbacks in the Super Bowl puts a fine point on the absurdity of that thinking. Now, if the NFL can just get more diversity among head coaches and in front offices. I want to note, uh, Patrick Mahomes won a second uh, NFL MVP prize this week. A single vote was cast for Denny Kellington, who was the hmm. Buffalo Bills assistant athletic trainer who gave life-saving CPR to DeMar Hamlin uh, when the Bills' safety went into cardiac arrest on the field last month. I, hmm. I, I thought it was a wonderful gesture. Nice moment. Basketball, LeBron James became the biggest scorer of all time. He was kind of pre-lauded for that achievement in the weeks leading up. This week, a lot of major stars found new teams, didn't they? Yeah, a great moment for King James, and then all this frenetic movement of players at the trade deadline quickly became the big news. None bigger than the end of the super team experiment in Brooklyn, which clumped superstars Kevin Durant, Kyrie Irving, and James Harden together in hopes of ruling the NBA. Well, that turned into a mess, and now it's a cautionary tale that clumping Scott doesn't always work. Uh, This week, the Nets traded Irving to Dallas, Durant to Phoenix, where Undaunted, he will try to create another super team with stars Chris Paul and Devin Booker. Interestingly, the WNBA has gotten into the super team game, too. New York and Las Vegas are the new behemoths of the women's game, thanks to recent free agent signings. Clumping doesn't necessarily create champions. Is that why they don't have any problem in you and me working together week after week? (laughs) Uh, Let me ask. International Olympic Committee is suggesting a plan by which it might allow Russian and Belarusian athletes to compete at the 2024 Games in Paris. Is this a strong principled position by the IOC? 
Well, it thinks so. You know, remember after Russia invaded Ukraine a year ago, the IOC pushed for strict bans on Russian teams and officials at international competitions. But now, as you note, the IOC is exploring this pathway for Russian and Belarusian athletes to compete in Paris because the IOC says banning them amounts to discrimination. Uh, The plan would have the same neutrality rules that Russian athletes have had at the last few Olympics. No flags, no anthems, no Russian uniforms. That's been part of the ongoing doping punishment against Russia. But it's, you know, it's always been a bit of a folly as everyone has known who the Russian athletes are. Now, yesterday, Ukrainian President Zelensky said, and I'm quoting, while Russia kills and terrorizes, representatives of the terrorist state have no place at sports and Olympic competitions, and it cannot be covered up with some pretended neutrality or a white flag. Many agree with him, including the mayor of Paris. There's even talk of an Olympic boycott. So a year and a half out from the games, already signs of potential trouble. NPR's Tom Goldman, thanks so much. You're welcome. Gender-affirming care for transgender youth is now banned in Utah after a law passed there in late January. It prohibits young people from getting a range of treatments from puberty blockers to gender-affirming surgeries for people under the age of 18. Some patients who'd been diagnosed for treatment prior to the ban can continue to get treatment. There are over 306 similar bills introduced by state lawmakers over the past two years. Dr. Ellie Brownstein is a pediatrician and is president of the Utah chapter of the American Academy of Pediatrics. She joins us from Salt Lake City. Thanks so much for being with us. Glad I could join you. Supporters of banning these treatments say that there's just not enough research. Uh, it's, It's too new and that banning the treatments will allow for more research to be done. Are they wrong? Well, our bill actually doesn't allow us to do any research. It doesn't allow people to be put in studies to determine the long-term effects of some of these medications. Now, I will say puberty blockers have been used for 30 years for a number of conditions such as precocious puberty, where, you know, a five, six, seven-year-old might start through puberty. Well, you don't want them to be going through puberty at that age. So we use medication to block that. That's the same thing we're talking about in older kids. Those have been deemed fairly safe and used for a long time. Um, We have less information regarding hormones to affirm uh, gender in older kids, but we'd like to do research. We don't have that option, at least in Utah. And what's the result of that? What are your concerns? My concerns are that gender diverse kids are at high risk for mental health issues. Over 50% of those kids have either contemplated or attempted suicide. And we're now saying that we're not allowed to help them, that we're not allowed to use the evidence-based therapies that are available to help kids feel comfortable with who they are and in their own skin. I I guess the opponents of what you've been doing don't accept that it's evidence-based. They're wrong? There is evidence that has been collected. It's used across the world. The medical organizations, the Academy of Pediatrics, the Academy of Family Practitioners, the endocrinologists, the gynecologists, all work with the same set of protocols and information based on the information we have. We can always use more. But I do believe that we have evidence-based information that says that gender-affirming care is important to kids. What kind of treatments are permitted now, or will still be permitted? 
The first thing that any patient needs is acceptance of who they are. You know, feeling love, acceptance from family, from friends, and that you as a person are an acceptable person is vital to all of us, and that we can all still do. The other thing that is available is many folks socially transition. They will wear the clothes that feel good to them. They will dress and use makeup and hairstyles and even choose names that are appropriate to them. And for some, that's all they may ever need. But for some, at least that part is available. I gather a number of your patients are trans and uh, and gender nonconforming. And I, I wonder if you've heard from them and their families since this legislation. I've heard from a number. I have families who want to know what they can do, uh, how they can change things because they feel hurt, injured, um, stopped in their medical care by someone who's not involved. I have some families who, with means, who have said, I'm going to establish care out of state. Um, but that's not available for everybody. No, not everybody can do that. I am concerned that some of our families will use the internet and seek care where they can get it. They may find hormones that may not be, you know, FDA approved, that may not be available in this country, that may not be actually what they're sold as on the internet, and then these kids are at higher risk. What are your concerns as a physician who, um, who treats individual patients you come to know? You come to know them and their families. That... It takes a long time for most patients to come to their own terms with what they feel, with who they are. And that process can take years in and of itself. And then it takes the family's time to come together and they come to us and seek treatment or where do I go from here? And then we're saying that the government has come in and said, well, we can't help you. They're stepping into that relationship that takes years to develop and deciding that these kids should not be allowed, or these families, I should say, because it's never kids alone. It's families and kids seeking the appropriate care and finding the right path forward for them, which is different in every family, as I would say, with almost anything. But it concerns me that the government is now coming into our exam room and deciding that this is not appropriate. Dr. Ellie Brownstein president of the Utah chapter of the American Academy of Pediatrics. Dr. Brownstein, thanks so much. You're welcome. And for anyone experiencing thoughts of self-harm, the National Suicide and Crisis Lifeline number is 988. The death toll from the earthquake in Western Asia has now surpassed 25,000 people. Survivors and the dead continue to be pulled from rubble of collapsed buildings. After initially remaining silent about the disaster, Turkish President Erdogan has acknowledged the government's response was not as quick as it should have been. And Pierre's Peter Kenyon visited the town of Osmania, where he found civilians pitching in to help aid workers. Walking up a dirt road toward an aid distribution area on the edge of Osmania, a young boy passes in the opposite direction, struggling a bit with a load of bottled water and food. He says, do you have a bag? Which, sadly, I don't have to offer. But when asked if he wants a banana, he says, no thank you, and continues on his way. 
Up ahead, a fenced-in field is covered in a small mountain of plastic bags. Young men move among them, upending the bags onto a growing pile of clothing, shoes, and other donations. I meet 27-year-old schoolteacher Sibel Dahli, who says she didn't see any aid arriving the first two days after the quake, but since then the distribution has picked up. She says her two-story building was cracked in the earthquake, so they moved, along with two other families, into one of the tent cities being set up by Turkey's emergency management agency. Meanwhile, she says, she's been in mourning for 17 members of her extended family who perished in the quake. She says returning home is the last thing on her mind right now. Even if the house is safe, I can't go in right now. It feels like it's shaking when I go inside the house. I can't even pass by the wall of the house. The tent is good enough for me right now. Local official Omer Celik says he keeps busy distributing women and children's clothing, blankets, and whatever arrives from the government or aid groups. He says the latest estimate he's heard is that 70 to 80 percent of the buildings in the area are damaged. 56-year-old Gonul asked that her family name not be used. She's worried about retribution from authorities for speaking to the media about the quake. She says when the shaking began, she ran to her balcony and clung to the iron bars outside the window. I held on to the iron bars. The shaking was so strong. I went back and forth, back and forth. I asked her about President Erdogan's visit to the area this week and his comments to the effect that no state could have dealt with a disaster of this magnitude. She wasn't impressed, but chose to focus on Erdogan's political ally, the ultra-nationalist MHP because MHP leader Devlet Bajali is from Osmania. This is his hometown. He had to show up. He's losing votes in his hometown. A walk through this part of Osmania seems to offer anecdotal evidence supporting one theory about why some houses were barely damaged in the earthquake, but others totally collapsed. Here, perhaps surprisingly, older buildings seem to have fared better than newer ones. The theory holds that older buildings, built before new regulations and codes went into effect, were generally sturdier and survived better. The suspicion is that some contractors maximized profits by not complying with the new rules put in place following previous earthquakes. Now, as the government faces another period of learning lessons and planning for future disasters, those who survived in Osmania wait to learn if their homes will be rebuilt or if they must be demolished. Peter Kenyon, NPR News, Osmania, Turkey. listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. Thanks for listening to 90.9 WBUR. In about five minutes, a climatologist discusses this winter's erratic weather. It is 39 degrees in Boston, sunshine today, and highs in the low 40s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance, who believes auto and home insurance should be straightforward and works to assure their customers at every step. PlymouthRock.com slash WBUR.
Sending your Valentine Winston flowers from WBUR creates stories that make your world bigger. I'm Lisa Mullins. Send your gift nearly anywhere in New England, and your support will bring you stories you won't hear anywhere else. Order by noon today for Monday delivery of any of our four choices, including two dozen long-stemmed red roses. Visit WBUR.org. And you might hear that suggestion to order by noon today and think you've got plenty of time. And I guess in some ways of looking at it, that's plenty of time. But uh, for most of us, time just sort of scoots by really quickly. It is 9.38, and that deadline is at noon. And uh, you very well might have a lot of things going on between now and then. Why not take care of it now while you're thinking about it? So go to WBUR.org and uh, place your order for your Winston flowers. That way they are delivered Monday, the day before Valentine's Day. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody with me in the studio. It's WBUR's Candace Springer. Good morning. Over the past couple of years, or actually more than a couple of years, decades, um, tens of thousands of WBUR listeners have sent their Valentine's Winston flowers from WBUR. Even I've had the pleasure of walking into my apartment mm. and seeing a beautiful arrangement of long stem roses, but they weren't for me. They were for <laughs> my roommate. <laughs> I mean, and they were from her boyfriend, but what was so nice is that he said he wanted to give her a special gift and he wanted to support the work that I do at WBUR, Mm. which just really warmed my heart. And so many years, so many people do the same thing for their loved ones, right? And so don't miss out on this noon deadline. Get these arrangements to your loved ones by Monday. You don't even have to worry about getting them there on Valentine's Day. And you can do that by calling 1-800-909-9287 or go to WBUR.org. And it's such a great way to support the work of the journalists here at WBUR. And you know, when you send those, when you send those Winston flowers, you get a chance to write a little card to go mm. with it to your recipient, and uh, we get to peek at some of those cards that people send. And um, here's one that uh, I particularly like that uh, somebody just uh, sent yesterday. Here's something special: roses for you and NPR for both of us to listen to. I love those. I love those so much. So call one eight hundred nine zero nine nine two eight seven, or go to wbur.org to order your flowers and get them there before Valentine's Day on Monday. Order by noon. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from American Cruise Lines, following the journey of Lewis and Clark while small ship cruising along the Columbia and Snake Rivers. Learn more at AmericanCruiseLines.com slash NPR. And from Staples, with supplies to get business done, no matter where it gets done. From ink and toner cartridges to technology like webcams and networking accessories. More at Staples Stores or StaplesConnect.com. This is NPR. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. The month of January has had weather that's been unexpected and varied. Warmth in the northeast, torrential rain in the west, more than 100 tornadoes, and relatively little snow. We're joined now by New Jersey state climatologist David Robinson, who's also a distinguished professor at Rutgers. Professor, thanks so much for being with us. My pleasure. Thanks. So how did January strike you? Unusual. I would say March-like here in the mid-Atlantic states. Our temperatures were record warm. 
um, and more closely aligned here in New Jersey to what we normally find in March. Or if you want to play a geographic game, it was more like a normal January in Charlotte, North Carolina. And no snow in New Jersey, as I understand it, until February 1. Yeah, very little snow. The northern hills had some snow. uh, But here in central New Jersey, we had our first measurable snow of the season, just two-tenths of an inch on the 1st of February. And that was the latest we've gone with records back to 1893. Uh, It's the latest we've gone in the season without measuring some snow that falls. How do you explain, Professor Robinson, how New Jersey gets no snow and Buffalo 100 inches? Yeah, and and even more unusual, Syracuse has well below normal snow, and they normally average more than Buffalo. That was a very specific situation where the winds, some cold winds in, in January and in December, came roaring up Lake Erie and gobbled up a lot of moisture off the lake and just pinpointed it on the Buffalo area. So it was a very localized event, but wow, it was just a tragic and dramatic event. I gather this is the third year in a row in which we've had a La Nina weather pattern, right? Yeah, it's an unusual triple La Nina where the sea surface temperatures in the eastern Pacific are colder than normal and a little milder in the west. Um, It's not all that usual to have three in a row. And the atmospheric rivers dropped, what, trillions of gallons of rain on California. It was just one storm after the next came in off the Pacific Ocean and had that hose was aimed at some part of the California coastline and up into the Sierra Nevadas where they had incredible amounts of snow. Is that driven by La Nina too? Actually, it's a little unusual for La Nina. La Nina years typically have more precipitation up in the Pacific Northwest and less as you go down the West Coast of the U.S. El Nino events tend to be wetter in the southern part of the West Coast and drier in the north. So that's the one part of the country that didn't exactly follow the rules, if you will. Is this climate change? This is weather. Every weather event is situated on a higher foundation, if you will, of warmer conditions. So the warm is a little warmer, the cold is a little warmer. But on a day-to-day, even a month-by-month basis, it's general weather patterns. You can't just look at one season, one month, let alone one week, and attribute it to climate change. Well, I think the question in a lot of minds is, have what we traditionally think of as the seasons changed? They certainly have in some parts of the world. In some areas, you're having your snow cover melt out earlier in the spring. And that leads to warmer springs, drier springs, and summers can increase fire danger in high latitudes and even high altitudes. Meanwhile, in the fall, it's a very mixed picture. Mm -hmm. Um, We've got a lot of more open water in the Arctic, and that's changing circulation patterns. In some cases, it's driving a little early season snow into the northern high latitudes. So sounds counterintuitive, but it makes physical sense. David Robinson is a New Jersey State climatologist and distinguished professor at Rutgers University. Thanks so much for being with us and sunny skies ahead. My pleasure. Same to you. Tensions between the U.S. and Russia are high. 
between the war in Ukraine to getting earthquake relief into Syria. And later today in All Things Considered, Michelle Martin talks with U.S. Deputy Secretary of State Wendy Sherman. I would call on Russia both to stop its targeting of civilians in Ukraine in this premeditated, completely horrifying invasion of a sovereign country and to support the opening of border crossings in Syria. You can hear that conversation live on your local radio station, its website, or at npr.org. Every state in the United States has its own flag, flower, animal, and song. Oh, fair New Mexico. But New Mexico might soon become the first state with an official aroma. State Senator Bill Soles is behind the proposal. He joins us now from Santa Fe. Senator, thanks so much for being with us. Good morning. It's a real pleasure to be with you. What does New Mexico smell like? Well, in the fall, New Mexico is filled with the aroma of our famous green chili roasting. Every grocery store in the state has one of their big roasters going. And as we drive by, we smell that and we know it's time to go and get some of that chili, uh, sack it up, put it in our freezer. Ah, I have been there for that. And it really is soul stirring. Now, New Mexico grows about 60% of chilies in the U.S.? That's correct. Uh, We're one of the largest producers. I have probably some in Texas and California, but it's very unique to New Mexico and very much a part of our culture. Your district grow a lot of them? It does. I live in Las Cruces in southern New Mexico, and just north is Hatch, which is world famous for its Hatch Chili Festival each fall. Um, This idea came from fifth graders? Yes. uh, In November, I was at a fifth grade class in what they had for an enrichment day, and they invited me as someone to come talk about being a state senator. I started asking them, anybody know what our official state bird is? The roadrunner or state mammal, the black bear. We have a state insect, the tarantula hawk wasp. And New Mexico also has an official state question. (laughs) Red or green? Red or green. (laughs) If you want both, you're supposed to answer Christmas. And every restaurant knows that. And the students caught on that real quick. And one student said, I really, really like in the fall when the green chili, I can smell it roasting over at my grandma's house. And that led to a discussion about Let's see about making an official aroma for the state of New Mexico of the chili roasting in the fall. You know, we know how divisive politics is these days. So has there been an active group opposing this? There has been no one opposing. Everyone I bring this up to gets that smile on their face where they know that aroma. They've got their own story. In New Mexico, we talk about we all have our chili story. And everybody catches on right away. Often before I even tell them what we're thinking about for the official aroma, they go, oh, it's got to be chili roasting, right? I mean, they are quick to do that. It, it's very much a part of, of who we are as New Mexicans. Well, you're, you're, you're a true statesman. So what, what has to happen to make uh, this uh, Chile's the, uh, the state aroma? Well, this actually is a bill. So it's got to go through the full process. It's been through one committee in the Senate. Then it's going to go to the Senate floor. And on the Senate floor, we are planning on having the big chili roasters. They look like a 55-gallon drum with a wire mesh on it. 
turning on a spit in front of uh, the big flames that do the roasting. Oh my gosh, this sounds wonderful. But then just as we're ready to introduce this bill, we're going to have the attendants bring in fresh roasted chili to each of the legislators. So the whole chamber is going to be filled with this amazing aroma of chili roasting. And then the governor would sign the bill. I'm hoping the governor will actually go down to the fifth grade elementary class and sign the bill with the students. But I suspect they will uh, greet her with all of their favorite recipes for chili. Wow. And, and, and probably have to uh, wipe a little green chili off their chin, too. Bill Tolles is a state senator from New Mexico. Thanks so much for being with us, Senator. Thank you so much. Patrick Bringley suffered a profound loss and decided to seek shelter in the most beautiful place he knew. He would spend a decade there as a guard. Let's ask him to read from his new memoir, All the Beauty in the World, the Metropolitan Museum of Art and Me. The mornings are church mouse quiet. I arrive on post almost a half hour before we open, and there is no one to talk me down to earth. It's just me and the Rembrandts, just me and the Botticellis, just me and these vibrant phantoms I can almost believe are flesh and blood. Patrick Bringley joins us now from Brooklyn. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. I want to begin with your brother, 26, and died of cancer. You were working in events planning at The New Yorker. What do you think the loss of your brother set off in you? Well, when I was working at The New Yorker, of course, I was an office job, and I had my mind on office politics, and I thought I was sort of doing big things. But then your brother gets ill, and you're spending all this time in quiet hospital rooms, and you realize that something momentous is happening in those quiet rooms that maybe makes what's happening over at the office feel not so momentous. Um, and it set off in me a kind of desire, a need to be more in touch with just fundamental things that are maybe painful but beautiful as well. Because I think a lot of people will understand seeking a day or two of solace at a great museum, but you you were a security guard there for 10 years. That's right. Time works differently when you're a guard. And I think when I was inside that place and you have an hour and then another hour and then a day and another day and another month, your mind works on a bit of a, a longer wavelength. And I was very happy to have all that time to sort of soak in that place that's inexhaustible and kind of develop a more profound relationship to what's inside of it. How did you begin to relate to the art, seeing it day after day? I mean, were there old friends that you would look up? Yeah. When I first started, my home section was the old master paintings wing. And I was very happy to be there because many of those paintings, which are sometimes very sad, but they're also so beautiful. They're sort of luminously sad. And I was happy to be there because it sort of reminded me of the atmosphere sitting in those hospital rooms. And there was something very consoling about that. But you develop all different relationships with different works of art. And just like you said, in some ways, they're your companions. They sort of hang around on the walls and you are leaning on the walls. And there are some that I thought of in my mind as kind of long lookers, meaning ones that you keep returning to and they, they get better. If you view them sort of passively, they shine a little bit more than they would if you just look at them, you know, briefly with concentration. Like? Like, I always think of Peter Bruegel's The Harvesters. 
Um, one thing I say is sometimes paintings feel like a window that just sort of cut a hole through the wall and you're just looking into this other world. And this is a landscape from 1565 and it's, it's quite large and it has these golden green sweep off to a distant horizon. So it seems like a picture that just encompasses the world, but then your eyes follow the path forward and you also have these peasants in the foreground who are having a meal under a pear tree. And that also seems so relatable and so human. It just kind of encompasses it all. Is your job when you're a guard to watch the art of the people? It's a little of both. I mean, they tell you protect life and property in that order. So if the place was burning down, we'd protect you before we'd protect the Rembrandts. You began to put labels on certain kind of visitors. Can I ask you about a few? Sure. The sightseer? The sightseer. So that's someone who is sort of galloping through the museum. They've got maybe five things on their checklist. They want to see Washington crossing the Delaware. They want to see the Egyptian temple. And that's great. You know, it's a big part of their trip to New York City. Yeah. What about the dinosaur hunter? So this is going to be a parent with small children. Maybe it's their first visit to New York City and they are peering around corners and thinking that they are in the museum in New York City and they're saying, why is there all of this art? And of course, they're thinking about the Natural History Museum right across Central Park. So they'll come up to me and I'll say, I'm sorry, you have to go across the park to the west, but hey, here we've got mummies, we've got arms and armor, maybe your kids will enjoy that. Uh, I uh, I didn't know until reading this book that a lot of people who come to the Met just can't keep their hands off the art. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the ancients who had their Greek and Roman statues, surely they touched those things. Those things sort of call out to be touched in a way. They seem so smooth and the stone seems so cold. So it's understandable. People just slap their hands down on it. But also people just don't know. They don't know. I had a young man. He tried to climb a Venus statue and I stopped him. He looked at her and she had a missing head and missing arms and he looked all around and he said, so all this broken stuff, it broke in here? <laughs> I wondered the same thing. At one point toward the end of the book, you find yourself rehearsing some advice that you would give to visitors. Can I ask you to rehearse a little of that out loud for us? Absolutely. In some ways, it, it tracks the course of my 10-year career that I think you want to start out speechless. You want to just wander that place don't say anything to anybody, maybe not even a guard, and just lose yourself, kind of shed whatever it is that you brought into the museum, your more sort of narrow thoughts, and you wander from Egypt to Rome to Mesopotamia, just feeling tiny. There's a great sort of relief in that. But at some point, too, you want to flip the switch and you want to say, well, you know, the Greeks and the Egyptians, they were people just like I'm a person and they had hands and hearts kind of like mine, and I'm going to use my head and my heart, and I'm going to think through these questions, and I'm going to pick favorites and decide what I like and what I don't like and decide what I think is true about the world. Learn from art, not just learning about the art. Now that you're out of the Met, you have to pay for your own socks? Oh, I do, yes. I, I no longer get the $80 hose allowance in my paycheck. Simon & Schuster did not provide that. So there's an $80 uh, sock subsidy. There is. There is. I, I can't say that you have to put in receipts. So maybe some of those guards are spending it on beer at Carlo East. But no, you, you get that $80 for socks. 
Patrick Bringley, his book, All the Beauty in the World, the Metropolitan Museum of Art and Me. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Jarl and Pamela Mohn, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. From Made in Cookware, Made in Cookware is crafted by chefs, for chefs, and designed for restaurants and home kitchens around the world. Their cookware can be found at madeincookware.com. And from the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing transformative youth and criminal justice reforms. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody, just here with WBUR's Candace Springer to remind you that you need to choose your gift by noon today if you want your Winston flowers delivered Monday, the day before Valentine's Day. And it's coming right up on 10 o'clock, so that means you've only got two hours. But why waste those next two hours? Go ahead and take care of it now while you're thinking of it, and then you'll be sure you've gotten it done. Just go to WBUR.org. Yes, and if you send your special someone flowers from WBUR, they're getting high-quality arrangements, and you're helping us tell the stories that matter to you and to share stories that bring joy to all of your lives. So, again... That deadline is noon today for flowers, uh, and you want to go to WBUR.org or 1-800-909-9287 to get them on Monday. And thank you. Senior business reporter Yasmin Amr. This is 90.9 WBUR FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.